I think we're recording. Yes, we are. We're recording. Yay. All right. Hi, hi, Buzz. Uh, uh, it's a blessing to have all of you here tonight. And I don't know what you perceive this class to be about. We'll get into that in a second. But it's a blessing to have you here tonight. And I hope you stick with it because I don't think you'll be sorry. And hopefully we're going to record all of, all of these. So if you miss one, that you might plan on getting the CD so that you can catch up. Because these are going to build sequentially. And you'll understand more of that as this evening unfolds, I hope. Okay? But look at the title uh, before we begin. We're actually going to have a prayer, but I just want you to look at the title. It's embracing our faith, encountering our culture, engaging our world. It's not just about sharing the gospel. It's more than that. And you'll understand why in the course of the class. Uh, Because I think today is different when it comes to sharing the gospel. I really believe today is different. And so we need to understand our culture and we need to be equipped. And so this class is going to be about sharing the gospel. But there's going to be four weeks of preparation leading up to that. Now, I want to qualify. Four weeks based on my preparation. (laughs) But if we have a lot of questions or discussion, it could go longer. My plan is to have this last six weeks. But I, but I wrote, I, when I set out to write this course, I had no idea how long it was going to be. I had all this stuff and all this reading out before me because I had all these thoughts in my mind what this course needs to have in it. And my mind was just popping all over the place. And when I do that, it's not good for me. I just have to tell you. Because I'm just all over the place when I'm doing this. And then I have all these books and all these notes out on the table. And then I have to look at it and I have to pray and I have to say, okay, Lord, I need a tack to take and a way to figure this out so I have a good, reasonable, organized way of presenting it. Once I calm down and I'm prayerful and I get a way to go, it comes together. And that's what we have here in this outline. And I had two different people typing. One typing my outline that I'm going to be teaching from, and then my saintly wife, who actually typed this up for you. While, while we were on vacation, I might add. Which, prob- which probably did not add to our vacation or our relationship. <laughs> <laughs> but, she, but, she's here. <laughs> but she came anyway, and uh, she did a really good job with the outline, so you can commend her for that. Um, but this is also designed in such a way for you to take notes. Uh, and so if you're a note taker, uh, there are spaces at times uh, for notes to be taken, and that's why there's spaces at times. So uh, please take advantage of the outline. Follow the outline. If something is not clear to you, please raise your hand. I don't want to go too fast. And I want this to be clear, as clear as possible for everyone. I don't want to leave anyone behind. And I don't want you leaving because you say, oh, I'm just, you know, that's, it's just not getting me. You need to get this. You need to get this. Not only for your own sake, but for the sake of others. You need to get this. And I'm just really blessed that you're here. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we thank you for the gift of this time and for this class that I believe you formed in my heart, in my mind, through a presentation at the diocese that lit the fuse. And Lord, uh, just for my burden for those who don't know you and for this culture that seems to be drifting so badly. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, in our minds, in our midst, and in this culture to cause a revival, to cause people to seek you and to find you, and to use us as instruments, as catalysts, for people to, to come to the knowledge and love of you. And Lord, that we would be your instruments uh, to touch lives in our families, in our neighborhood, friends, and Lord, people we don't even know. Lord, that you, that you would find fertile ground in order to plant seeds and in order to blossom and bear fruit. And we offer you this time and in the coming weeks, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here's kind of the groundwork. This is a history class. This is a sociology class. This is an apologetic class. This is a Bible study. This is an evangelism class. Okay, this has so many different dimensions to it because all of those aspects are important to come to an understanding of where we are today and where we need to be, I believe, in order to understand and engage the culture. Now, I want to throw out a disclaimer. Presenting the gospel is always the same in terms of presenting the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. That never changes. Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sin so that we might have saving faith, so that he might become our Savior and our Lord, so that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit. That never changes. Never. But how we present it and how we approach people, it depends on who we're talking with. And it depends on our understanding of who it is we're engaging and we desperately need to understand this culture. We need to be mindful. We need to be prayerful. And we don't need to be fearful or defensive. And that's what happens so many times. We hear people because they are so strong in their opinions. And they're so intimidating. That we either become fearful, like I really don't have the answers. Or we become defensive. And both of those are going to be self-defeating. Because we feel like we can't engage people. Because they're so strong. And we need to learn how to engage people that are so strong. And frankly, not necessarily because they have a strong belief. Just because they want to put you off. So they don't have to make a decision. So that they don't have to feel convicted. So they don't have to make a commitment. They might be afraid of eternal life or the prospect of eternal life. They might be afraid of the judgment of others or peer pressure or the culture. You don't know what's going on in them. So why should you get fearful and defensive? Think about that just for a second. Right? Why should you get fearful or defensive when you really don't know what's going on in them? That's why we need to begin to engage people and talk to people. Not be fearful. Reach out in love. Not be defensive. 
But be patient and persistent. Jesus certainly was. That doesn't mean at times he wasn't confrontational. And Meredith would certainly tell you, at times, I'm confrontational. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Jean? You're talking about confronting people. What about those people in your family who know you well and say, I have heard it over and over and over. Do not tell me any of that ever again. Right. Do not tell, tell me that ever again. Well, I would try to find different approaches to plant seeds. Because my brother, who is brilliant, he is brilliant. He works for the National Science Research Foundation, taught the philosophy of science for 20 years in a university. I always try to find new avenues and ways of just nudging him, you know? And I never quit. I never quit. You know, I invited him to come down for my 25th anniversary celebration. And as it turns out, he made a reservation, and he's coming down for October 21st and 22nd. And we're changing. So he's coming down anyway. That weekend. So I guarantee I will, I will look for ways to engage him. Because I always do it. He's my older brother. So it makes it that much more difficult. Yes. Just a little louder. I will try to find ways to engage him. You know, even though I've engaged him before, I will pray about, I will look for, I will be mindful for, and look for ways to engage him. Because I never give up. But always the same way? No. You know, and just pray for openings, too. You know, I pray for a soft heart. I pray for an opening. I look for different avenues in different ways. You do have to respect Absolutely. Yeah, you have to respect them. Yeah, you cannot just keep banging the door in the same tune over and over again. But you look for ways. Like, for example, what I found out the last couple of times my brother and I got together up at his turf is that he's involved in a small group with two lawyers and they're reading books on ethics. They're not believers. So I said, tell me what you're reading about. You know, and, and I start to engage him at that level. And then I start challenging him a little bit, like, how can you say that? What's your basis? You know, what's your objective truth here that you're operating from? And I always bring it around to the Lord. Always. And he expects it now. <laughs> you know? But, yes, but we have a great relationship now in terms of even talking about that. And I have seen movement. Slow movement, which is incredible. It really is. Sometimes just giving them time and room and living. Right. Right. And and you have to live it. You have to live it. Yes. Hold on. I I forgot to do this with Gene. I want to get into the practice. All I'll say, Greg, is that I found that family a lot of times is very hard to And that's why outreach is so important to people that you don't know because usually people are hit by someone they don't know or don't know well. Mm-hmm. Something just hits home with them of what they say or what they do, yeah. their action, you know, whatever it is. And family is really the hardest outreach, which is 
all the more reason why I should reach out to your brother and you should reach out to mine. Yeah. Because they're probably going to listen to someone other than their sibling. Yeah. And, and, and Will brings up a really good point. And, and this is getting a little tangential right now. But I'm going to throw this out there. And by the way, when you ask a question, give your name. Because not everybody here knows you. Okay? Thank you, Will. Okay. So here's, here's what I did one time with my brother. And this is what I'm talking about in Finding Avenues. Okay? I listened to this Christian think tank. And I've listened to it from number one. And it comes out quarterly. Right now, it's on number 132 or 133. So that tells you how long I've been listening to this Christian think tank. It comes out quarterly, and I'm on number 132 or 133. That's a long time. It's called Mars Hill Audio Series. And there's a guy by the name of Jay Budzieszewski, who is a political and ethical philosophy professor at the University of Texas, where my brother taught. And so I heard him the first time, and I thought, this guy's really good. And I heard him the second time, and I thought, I'm going to call this guy and ask him to spend time with my brother and present the gospel to him. Because I can't always be the one. So I called him. I mean, you know, sometimes we just have to be bold when we really have a burden for someone. So I called Jay. And I said, Jay, my name's Greg Kronz. Do you know the name Kronz? Yes. <laughs> so you know my brother Fred? Yes. I said, I'm going to ask you something that I'd really like you to pray about. I'm going to ask you if you wouldn't mind engaging my brother in a relationship, ask him to coffee, ask him out for a beer, whatever you feel comfortable doing, and talking to him about the Lord. Would you do that? He said yes. Now this is a guy who now has been on the Mars Hill series four or five times. So he's a speaker. So I presumed he would be willing to be bold about his faith. I don't remember how many years after that. Let's say four or five years after that, my brother took a job with the National Science Research Foundation, moved to Falls Church. I, and I asked my brother at that point, I said, did Jay Budzieszewski ever look you up? He said, no. I was heartbroken. I was heartbroken. Meredith said she remembers that. Yeah. And it's like, we have got to be willing to do that for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's not only, you know, like if you said to me, hey, I got this brother, would you be willing? I'd call him up. I'm not shy. I'd call him up and say, hey, I know your brother. He's a great guy. Well, I might not. Yeah, I would. I would say that. I'd say, he's a great guy. I'd say, you know, I hear you're in town or I hear you're around. Mind if we have a cup of coffee together? I would do that. You know? You are, you are outgoing. So many people are not. I mean, I'm outgoing. Yeah. But so many people are not. But see, I don't see in Scripture where it says, be evangelistic if you're an extrovert. <laughs> you know? That's the thing. You can't base being obedient to the gospel on your personality type or on your giftedness. Like, for example, we're all called to tithe, but some people have the gift of giving or generosity. We're all called to evangelize. Some people have the gift of evangelism. 
We're all called to teach our children if we have children, but not everybody has the gift of teaching. You know, so the reality is we may not all have the gifts. See, this is why I said this might be six weeks long, by the way. Okay? We might all have, we might not all have all the gifts, but we are all called into various dimensions. I'm going to get back to my notes right now, okay? Now, if we, and if you have been in worship and you've heard me preach, you've heard me say this. If you are faithful to the two great commandments, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will talk about it. If you really love Him with the whole of your being, how could you not? I love Meredith. I love my kids. I talk about them. They're my sermon illustrations. You know? Yes. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you want them to be with the Lord for eternity. It's real simple. If you fulfill the two great commandments, you will fulfill the great commission. I'm convinced of that. You will seek ways to share the gospel. Always? Maybe not. Maybe you're just called to be a witness with this person, excuse me, with your life. Maybe it's someone else's. But maybe you plant seeds, maybe you water, maybe you fertilize. I don't know. But we're all called to have that antenna up, that, you know, periscope up, looking, praying. That the Lord would use us. That's biblical. And too many people are saying, not my deal, not my call. And that's a problem. Yes, John. There seems to be... Thank you. Thanks, Will. What's your name? John Evans. <laughs> there seems to be a growing mood in this country around people not wanting to engage. Right. Especially in topics that are uncomfortable or they feel like they know the answer and they don't want to hear any other input or opinion about right. what it is they believe. In fact, there's a survey this week that came out that 20% of college kids think it's okay to use violence to stop somebody from speaking. Yes. Yeah. And are you going to address, maybe we'll address that later on and we don't have to talk about it. Well, it's really, really interesting. It's a great, great point. And, and it goes back to Jesus and the prophets. And I am going to make that point just in terms of the Bible. The Bible shows that. The prophets would speak. And the false prophets would come out and say, shut your mouth. It's peace. And Jeremiah would say, you're saying peace, peace where there is no peace. And they would say, shut your mouth. And what did they do with Jeremiah? They stuck him in, stuck him in a cistern. A septic tank. Because they didn't want him to talk. This is nothing new. It's just new in our culture. What did they do with Jesus, the Pharisees and Sadducees, because they didn't want him to speak? They crucified him. Paul, you had a group of people who swore to fast and pray until they killed him. Why? Because he preached. This is not new. What's amazing to me, though, and this is what's most fascinating, college campuses where there's supposed to be a free exchange of ideas. 
There is anything but. And it's really, really fascinating because the most liberal of people are the ones that are shouting people down and even swearing violence. And there was an article in The Economist, it was either last week or the week before, about a liberal professor, a liberal professor, who said she is no longer going to be able to teach because the ultra-liberals are becoming so problematic. Saying she's not liberal enough. That's what's going on in our culture. So, the reality is, everybody is going to be, you know, if you will, threatened to be quiet and even threatened with violence so why not speak? Because even the liberals are starting to be threatened. This was the most... Uh, I've got the article actually in my office. I'm going to bring it out for one of the later classes. Um, it was considered one of the most liberal universities in the country where this happened. And the people went there because they thought that they would be affirmed in their liberality and they found one of the, one of the liberal professors was not liberal enough for them. <laughs> So you're exactly right. But see, this is nothing new. That's what we have to recognize. This is nothing new. The prophets were threatened by the false prophets. Jesus and Paul were threatened by the Pharisees and Sadducees. It is nothing new. It's new to us. Because we're not used to persecution. We're not used to seeing it, especially in the United States. And what's most ironic is we're not used to seeing it in a place where we allegedly have free speech. And there's supposed to be a free ex exchange of ideas at universities and college campuses. That's the amazing thing. That's the amazing thing. But that's what we're going to get to. Okay? We're getting there. But we're not there yet. Okay? Um, what we need to also understand, and we will eventually get to, there are assumptions that people have in our culture. Assumptions that they don't even recognize that they have. And that's a problem. Case in point, the Big Bang Theory is an assumption that people subconsciously take in in school, and so subconsciously the seed has been planted, you don't need God. Understand, that seed has been planted by the Big Bang Theory. If you don't recognize that, you don't understand what's going on. But that's the assumption behind that being taught. And it's no longer taught as a theory. It is taught as what? The only way. Which means what? It's fact and it's a religion. That's right. It's fact and it's a religion. In our secular culture. And what's happened to Christians because of that, Christians don't even recognize that they have bought into some of the worldview, if not a lot of the worldview of the secular culture, and thereby they have compromised their faith. Including, maybe, some of us. And that's why we need to evaluate our beliefs and our belief system, not according to the culture, not according to the majority, not according to our peers, not according to what we see in the media, but according to the Word of God. The Word of God is where we start. We have to. See, when you begin to believe that, as the culture says, everybody's belief is their own belief and everybody's belief is valid, everything is subjective, we got a problem. 
Because then there's no objective truth. And we as Christians believe the Bible is the word of God. What does that mean? It is objective truth. That is a culture clash. And so you have to go back. If you're not there, you have to go back. That's why I'm not making any assumptions by people here. You have to go back to the basics. You have to say, I believe God exists. And you have to be so firm in that. Because, as I said before, the Big Bang Theory assumes God isn't necessary. Recognize that. The Big Bang Theory assumes God is not necessary. Buddhism assumes God is not necessary. Confucianism assumes God is not necessary. You've got a lot of the world that assumes God is not necessary. With atheism and agnosticism growing in this country, guess what? The tide is not going in our way. Yes, Jean. Would you? Wait. I didn't speak pretty loud. No, not loud enough. We got a reporter here. Okay. All right. Jean, pray. Why could God not have used the method of the Big Bang to create? I'm not saying He didn't. But what I am saying is. The Big Bang may have very well been the way God used it, but God used it. But when you're te- teaching the Big Bang and not creationism, that is to say creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, that God created what was when the Big Bang took place, that God is excluded from the Big Bang theory because there can't be God taught in the public schools. You've assumed creation without God. When you said it last night, it was very good. When you went into the scripture, yes, and described what the scripture said. That's what I'm about to do. Okay. Yep. Uh, if you look in your outline, I I put point number one in the body of what we're talking about. God exists. Genesis chapter one assumes God exists. That's that's my discovery class number one. The Bible never sets out to prove God exists. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, period. That's it. The Bible doesn't try to prove God exists. Genesis 1-3, through 3, in the beginning, God, that's the Father. Then it talks about the Spirit of God moving over creation. And Jesus talks about the Spirit blowing where He will in John 3 when He's talking about Nicodemus and the need to be born again. And you can look this up later. And then it says, and God said, let there be light. God's spoken word was the creative force, the force in creation. And John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And John 1, 14, and the word became flesh. The word is Jesus. And then you get to John, or Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image. God the Trinity. So you've got the Trinity in Genesis chapter 1. That's what we believe as Christians. You need to be so convinced of that, you can't be shaken. So that when you're talking to someone, and someone is trying to intimidate you, or cause you fear, you you can just love them. Because you're convinced. You don't have to sit there and say, you don't have anything to say, I love your love. You don't have to do that. You can say right from the very beginning, 
God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed and created everything that is. That's who I rest in. He's got this. He's got me. Boy, if you start there, you're okay. Honest. So we can love people. And we can start with that kind of confidence in the God we worship, in the God we serve, in what it is that we're about. And when God created everything that is, it's really interesting because even if you look at, you know, um, the Big Bang Theory and then you read about evolution, as creation unfolds in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, what's fascinating is it's the same evolution as evolutionary scientists talk about. It's the same unfolding. Isn't it interesting that Moses knew enough to write that down? I don't think Moses was a scientist. Yes, hold it. Mike? No, no, no. no. Yes, yes, yes. Termite over there. Huh? Termite. Oh, that's okay. We can handle that. Yeah, don't deal with that. Go. All right. Yes, Cheryl. Hold it. So eventually, you're going to talk about how to deal with people that think they know the truth and think they know everything about the Bible, but have wrong theology. Well, well, there are times that there are gray areas in theology, okay? Because, for example, there are Presbyterians and there are Methodists and there are Anglicans and there are, you know... And so, not everybody's going to agree on every point. What I'm more interested in is the essentials. The essential teaching of the Bible. And there are things that are undeniable in the Scriptures. Undeniable. That is consistent throughout the Scriptures. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sin. Okay? I mean, there are things that are undeniable. You know... Uh, when you start talking about how Jesus is present in the Holy Communion, we might have some disagreements between the different denominations. You know what? It's not essential for salvation. Okay? That's not a critical point. So when you talk about theology, it's, it's the essential aspects of theology, the major doctrines of theology that are critical. That we will address. Okay? Patty, did you have something? No. thought I saw a hand up over here. Okay. When God created, we call what we have created the cosmos, the created order, which means our natural laws. Okay? That's why we have science in the first place. Right, Frank? He's very good on what and when and why. Yeah. Not so strong on how. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, and, not, and he doesn't always tell us why either. That's right. You know, but the reality is, is that the whole reason that we have modern science, at least in the modern era, the way we do, is because people believe God was orderly. It's called the cosmos. The created order. And people believe in natural laws given by God in created order. 
chaos was what God brought into order through creation. Chaos is what came back when sin entered the world through the fall in Genesis chapter 3. That's why the upper firmament and lower firmament broke loose in the flood as well. If you read the story, it's not just about rain, by the way. It's about chaos. God set the upper firmament and the lower firmament in creation, and those broke free during the time of the flood. To make the point of chaos. What's that? The hurricanes. <laughs> it's a little more than that. Yes, Frank. Chaos is the absence of the laws. It's the absence of God asserting uh, his law. Chaos is the absence of laws. Chaos it's the absence of God asserting his laws. Okay, different from chaos. Right, yeah. Okay. Yep, yep. Uh, then, let's fast forward. I'll take that just in case. Let's fast forward. Genesis chapter 12. God's called Abraham. God then chooses to reveal himself to a person and to a people. Because God wants us to know him. Okay, now, here's a problem with our modern culture. Not only do some people not believe in God, some people not, do not believe in God's intervention in creation, and some people don't believe in the miraculous. So God's not going to reveal himself. You've got a disconnect for many people in our culture, which is why they don't see the Bible as a book that has any authority for their lives. Because God doesn't speak, God doesn't reveal himself, which is why every religion is equal. But we believe as Christians that God reveals himself. And he began to reveal himself specifically to a people in the person of Abraham. You have to know this. That our faith is a faith of revelation. That God reveals himself. That he calls us to himself. He's a God of relationship. And then, fast forward, he seeks to redeem through Jesus Christ. But what happens? Even when he brings the ultimate way to salvation in Jesus Christ, what happens? I mean, in the Old Testament, you know, he revealed himself in Abraham, and then he gave the prophets and further revealed himself, and then eventually the pinnacle, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the prophecies. What happens then? Corruption! Right? Corruption. What do we have going on? I don't know if I have these scriptures in your notes or not. Do I have Romans 6, Galatians 1, 6 and following? First yes. Peter? Okay, good. I want you to look these up later, but I'm going to tell you what these are in reference to. And we see these manifested today. I'm going to talk about them later, but I'm going to touch on them now. Um, antinomian. Antinomian we see in Romans 6 in particular. It means against law. Christians who believe we're saved by faith, but the law doesn't matter. If we're saved by faith, once you believe, you're fine. People love to throw out the phrase, once saved, always saved. So if I'm saved, 
I'm fine. Some people believe baptism. Once you're baptized, you're good. You got your fire insurance. Okay? You don't need to worry about anything. You're good. Well, then, immorality's fine. You can do whatever you want, and it's fine. And there are people who believe that. Or there are compromises along the way. There's no binding morality. Morality is fluid. And it changes with the ages. And there's open communion. In other words, you don't have to be baptized. Hey, we're just glad to have you. Doesn't matter what you believe. Come on in. Now, it's one thing to be welcomed to a church. But it's another thing to say, if you're going to receive communion, you need to understand what it is you're doing and why. Yes, Jean? Jean Grayson. I see the little children at the communion table. Yes. And I question how we can do that. All right. Let me ask you a question. I'm going to play Jesus for a minute. Let me ask you a question. Jesus, of course, grew up Jewish, right? So, when did Jesus participate in the Passover meal as a Jewish child? Was it when he was 12? No. When was he circumcised? Okay, so do you think he understood what he was doing? No, but somebody else did that for him. Yeah, exactly. But he participated in the meal, didn't he? He did. Yeah. This is our meal. So they don't have to know what they're doing. They need to be brought up understanding what they're doing. That they are part of the family through baptism. Just like a Jewish child is part of the family through Passover. And then when they become of age, they have to make their own conscious decision for doing it for themselves. Or not. Or not. That's what a bar mitzvah is about for the Jew. Or a bas mitzvah. It's real simple. Really. Hold it. I was just going to say, it's real simple as far as understanding salvation and love and mercy and grace. And actually, a child probably has a clearer understanding a lot of times as we alter than a lot of adults are sitting there because they don't get clogged up with yeah. all the scientific reasons they're trying to understand. I mean, it's just real simple for them to understand. Jesus died for them and they're having this meal. And, you know, it's probably clear. Yeah. I think there's different levels of understanding at different ages. But I think that, for example, in our household, when our ch- children were at the table, we prayed together. When they were infants, we held hands. And, I mean, you know, that was part of their culture growing up in our house. Just like this meal being part of our worship as the family of God and the Passover for the Jewish child is the same way. It's their salvation story that they need to participate in from early on because they're part of the household covenant until they can speak for themselves. Then they have to make their own decision. Yes? Hold it. We're getting a little appeal here. 
there is a scripture that says, do not come to the table unprepared. I'm sorry, do not come to the table what? Unprepared. Yes. Sickness come, can come from that. Right. Okay. I think that's the age of accountability. Okay. Yeah, that's what I would, that's what I would say to that. You have to be accountable. You know, and, and children at that point, they're accountable to their parents only until they make willful decisions for themselves. Okay. Yeah, just like a Jewish child. You know, they're part of the household covenant until they can make willful decisions for themselves. Right. That's what I would say. Right. Oh! Yeah, I think it's, I think it's uh, poor theology to say we baptize you and you're part of the, the household covenant and salvation, but you can't participate in the covenant meal. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> Right. Terrible theology. And it was, and I don't think at 13 that I understood maybe as much as my boys do because when we talk about it right. in very simple terms about why. And I think it's more, in fact, when they first started the children coming up, because I wasn't used to that, I just kind of looked and I wasn't sure. And then I thought, why are we leaving them out? See, it can become, Gina, can become ritualistic, whether it's done at baptism or confirmation. Unless there's faith in the household for baptism, and of the child when they're confirmed, then it just becomes ritualistic, period. So it can become a ritualistic practice no matter what, or it can become a real practice, you know, for the family. It all depends, Janet. I find that uh, every year or every several years, I'm, when I come to the table, it's different than I was 10, 20 years ago when I went to the table. I've grown in my faith so much that it means even more to me than it did back then. And I do believe in everything back then, but it seems like I keep growing and that's what the table really means. Right. Yeah, exactly. We can even grow in a deeper sense of that. Okay, give me five minutes because I want to have you out of here by quarter after the absolute latest because uh, that's my commitment. Uh, the second one that you're going to run into in these scriptures is Judaizers. Judaizers were the legalistic Christians. You have to become a Jew. You have to live into the law. All the law is the only way that you can really reflect that you're saved is if you live into all the law. You can get so legalistic in your faith that you miss the point. We need to be graceful and gracious Christians. Okay? This is not about legalism. We are not earning our way to heaven before or after. We know Christ. Okay? So it's not about being good enough. It's about Jesus Christ and living under the power of the Holy Spirit. Gnostics. This is having the right knowledge. And there's a lot of people who, hey, I'm good. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I'm good. As long as I got the right knowledge. You know? That ain't it. It's not just about believing in your head. I love the scripture, James 2.19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's not just about what's in your head. It's a life. And you know, the statement today, we know better today, boy, just that head knowledge. You know, people love to throw around that head knowledge. 
It's not about head knowledge. It is a life. It is a love relationship with the Lord, and it is a life. And so, you know, getting people to think like that. Heresies and apostasy were prevalent in the first generation of the church. Heresies were people who were departing from the faith and beginning to teach false doctrine apostasy as they just left. Okay? And we see both today. In the church and outside the church. We see both today. One thing that was different back then, by and large, in the ancient Near East, in the biblical arena, and what I mean by that are the people that were around the biblical teachers and preachers. There was a common element of belief in the supernatural. Okay? You know what I mean by that? People believed in God or God's multiplicity of God. That is not necessarily true today in the world in which we live. Secondly, by and large back then, people were mostly trying to be good or be good citizens or civil. That is not necessarily true today. People today feel that it's fine as long as you can get away with it. Integrity is not necessary today. Just watch people. Just watch people. It is amazing. Okay? Thirdly, I mentioned this already, I'm going to mention it again. Objective, subjective. Back then there was a belief in objective truth. Today, it doesn't matter. You can believe what you want, I can believe what I want. They can be in direct opposition. And the person that you're talking with is saying, it's cool, it doesn't matter. What do you mean it doesn't matter? They contradict each other. It doesn't matter. They both can't be true. It doesn't matter. What do you mean it doesn't matter? Truth doesn't matter today. That, that doesn't work for me. That just doesn't work. Go into a bank and say, I believe one plus one equals three. That's what works for me. You know what? You're going to get in trouble. <laughs> Did you want this, Ryder? No. That's going to get you in trouble, trust me. Okay? And, you know, people will say either everybody goes to heaven or there's no supernatural at all. You know, I will never forget, Meredith and I and our daughter Bethany and her husband Charlie were sitting there and we were having lunch together outside at a, at a restaurant in Pittsburgh. And this woman was over here listening to our conversation and, and apparently she was eavesdropping. She was sitting by herself. And Meredith found her wallet in the bathroom and inadvertently figured out who it was. And, and this woman said, I've been listening to you. You all are really neat. And she started engaging engages us. And she talks about herself being a Christian and a Mennonite. But as we began to talk further, she was one of those. It doesn't matter. You know, well, don't you believe in an afterlife? It doesn't matter. Well, what do you think about God? It doesn't matter. And it's like, how does that work? You say you believe in God, but nothing matters. How can that be? I mean, but that's the world in which we live. And that's the world in which... And see, that's one of the conversations that made me realize I have got to start figuring out how to talk to someone like that. Because it is a different world. And we need to begin to get into why do people think like that? And how can we begin to work on dialoguing with people like, like that? Because the Western 
culture. That is to say, European and American. The worldview has shifted dramatically in the last two to three hundred years, but in particular the last fifty. And that's what we're going to be talking about. And we be done tonight. Only because I rushed. Yeah. So if you want to look over your notes and come with questions next time um, from, from chapter 1, because next week we're going to talk about what was the foundation, the foundation as to how we got where we got. And it's the age of enlightenment. I mean, we can talk about, we see the same stuff in Scripture, which we do in a lot of ways. We see the heresies, we see the apostasy in Scripture. We see sin. Sin is sin. We see people trying to quiet and persecute the prophets and Jesus and Paul. We see all that. But there's a little bit different nuance today as to why we are where we are. And the Age of Enlightenment began that shift. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. John. Unfortunately, we have to babysit next week in Jacksonville. So how do we access these recordings? Well, hopefully they're going to be on CDs. Is Buzz going to be here next week, do you think? Okay. So you can access them the same way you do, like a Sunday sermon. I hope. I hope. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, we can do that, too. Yeah, we can do that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Since we're running a little late, I like to finish by 7.15 rather than do Compline tonight. We need to be, and I think next week with the air conditioning working over there, we need to be over here by 6.15 so we can start on time. Because my timetable, it works best for me on Wednesday night because this is my Friday night because Thursday is my weekend. Um, (laughs) If that translates for anybody. I like to I like to be done by seven and do Compline and then go home like seven fifteen. So I'm home by seven thirty. So I can put my feet up. That's fair. Yeah. So you know I'm just being honest. You know. Uh, what's that? So six fifteen in here. So if you're not going to dinner, be in here six fifteen. Okay. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of this evening and for the dialogue and for just the burden on our hearts to really know, to really know you and to really know the truth and to really be able to dialogue with those around us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a burden, a burden to grow more and more in love with you, a burden so much to love others that we desire that those we know in our family and around us who don't know you, that we would seek to find ways to be a witness and to share your gospel, to seek your mind and heart as to timing, as to when, when to share and what to share, but to be willing mouthpieces and ever-ready witnesses. Lord, continue to equip us in these coming weeks and bless our fellowship and this time of teaching and sharing. And bless us and keep us until we gather again in your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.